Good evening again, and welcome to Hiawatha Church. Uh, we almost never say good evening. I'm not used to <laughs> that phrase here in this building. But good evening. Uh, thank you for joining us at our uh, Good Friday service uh, this evening, where we celebrate, where we remember Jesus' death for us on the cross. Tonight, uh, we're going to continue our short little sermon series we've been doing on Sunday mornings as we talk about, uh, or as we go through the Gospel of Luke. In today's passage, we're going to be looking at uh, Luke 23, where we see this, uh, the end of Jesus' trial, and we see these two figures. We see Jesus and Barabbas, and we have kind of two conflicting Savior types uh, in this great um, trial here, and we're going to see, as, as you can probably guess, uh, which one the crowds choose and which one gets uh, executed. So we're going to be reading from Luke uh, chapter 23. You can follow along on the screen uh, if you'd like, and all the, the slides will be up um, on the screen behind me. You can follow along there as well if you'd like. All right, Luke 23, uh, verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, You have brought me this man as one who misleads the people, but in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. Then they all cried out together, the crowd, Take this man away. Release Barabbas to us. He had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed the crowd again. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What, what has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. But they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And their voices won, won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and release the one they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder. But he handed Jesus over to their will. So tonight in our passage, we see this great trial. So right before this, in this story, Jesus has been betrayed. He's been betrayed by one of his disciples. He's been abandoned by all of his closest friends. And under the cover and secrecy of, of night, he has been brought and tried before King Herod and also Pilate, who is the Roman prefect in charge of Judea and Jerusalem uh, at this time. And both of these men, King Herod and also Pilate, declare multiple times that uh, this Jesus is innocent, that the, that the charges brought against him just aren't true. And as we saw in our passage again and again, Pilate tries to release Jesus, but the crowds and the religious rulers will have uh, nothing of it. And eventually, after uh, they continue to yell, Pilate caves under their pressure. And during this time, there was a tradition that uh, over Passover, that Pilate would release a criminal, someone who was in prison, uh, he would pardon them. He would release them, maybe kind of like how that president pardons a, a turkey during Thanksgiving. And Pilate, at this time, he literally, he washes his hands of the responsibility and just gives it over to the crowd and, and says, fine, you guys really want this Jesus put to death? Well, fine, then I will bring up this guy named Barabbas, a guy that everyone knows is guilty. 
a guy that is, is a murderer, a guy that, who is violent, a guy who is a thief and started an insurrection. Surely the crowds will choose Jesus over this obviously horrible, guilty man. Yet the crowds choose Barabbas, and Jesus is led to the cross. Tonight we're going to focus on three aspects that we see in this story. So even though the story is true, it, it happened historically, it is, it is accurate, these were real men, this really did happen. Even beyond the, the actual historical events that happened at this trial, we're going to see that uh, kind of behind the scenes or, or God in his divine sovereignty is, is going to show us three important things in this trial, in this scene that we just read about, about uh, that's going to give us pictures and help us understand what Jesus is about to accomplish on the cross. So through this scene, we're going to see what Jesus's impending execution will mean and what it will accomplish for us and for all of the world. And the first thing that we see here in the story, we see that Jesus is a substitute. Jesus is a substitute. At Jesus' trial, we have both an innocent and a guilty man. The crowds realize it. The authorities realize it. And three times Pilate, remember at this time, there's not juries. It's just the, the person in charge gets to make a verdict and decide if they're guilty or not. And that person is Pilate. And three times in our passage, we see Jesus say, I, I found no guilt in this man. The charges you brought against him just aren't, aren't, aren't true. I investigated it. I spoke to him. He is innocent. We saw that in verse uh, 14. Pilate says, says to the crowd, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. So we have the innocent Jesus, that even his enemies, uh, people that could care less, people that, uh, you know, for Pilate, it would actually be better for Pilate if Jesus was guilty, but he can't help proclaiming that Jesus is innocent. And then we have another man, this guy named Barabbas, this guy who everyone knows is guilty. And he's not just a bad guy. He's not just breaking parole or, or you know, uh, drunk driving or something like that. But he is an evil man, a guy deserving of death, a guy who has uh, led an insurrection, a, a violent riot against uh, the Roman oppression. He's described as a thief and a murderer and a violent man. It is here at Jesus' trial we see an innocent man being substituted for an actual guilty criminal. And this points ahead to what Jesus is going to accomplish on the cross. Andrew Wilson, uh, in writing about this passage, he says, Jesus doesn't just die instead of Barabbas. He dies in his place as his substitute, his representative. We know this because... This is often missed. Barabbas and Jesus stand accused of the same crime, sedition, insurrection, treason. Barabbas is a revolutionary who has directly challenged Roman rule. And from a Roman point of view, Jesus' claim to be king of the Jews poses a real threat to Caesar. Few examples of substitutionary atonement in Scripture are clearer than this. The innocent man taking the penalty so that none remains for the guilty Barabbas. And whether we like it or not, Barabbas is not just a bad character in this particular story. 
But Barabbas is an archetype or an example of all of humanity. We are all a part of an insurrection against our creator and God. We've all rebelled against God and his rule over our lives. We've incited a betrayal against our faithful God and our traitors against the king of the cosmos. And like Barabbas, even though we are the guilty ones, we don't die. We aren't destroyed. Our execution is given to another. As traitors against God Almighty, the capital punishment that was rightly ours is not enforced on us. But rather, for those who have trusted in Christ, who, who believe the gospel, a substitute takes not just Barabbas's place, but our place as well. First Peter writes about this, For Christ also suffered for the sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The righteous dies for the unrighteous. Innocent Jesus unjustly dies, and guilty, treacherous, murderous Barabbas gets pardoned. And this is a picture of our story as well, right? For those of us who have put our worth and our hope in Jesus alone, Jesus takes the penalty that we deserve and puts that penalty on himself, puts the punishment on himself as he walks to the cross with his mouth shut. And as he dies on the cross, he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his innocence. He clothes us with clothes that say not guilty. And he makes us pure by pardoning our rebellion against our creator. And even though this is, this is shocking, this is scandalous, this is how God Almighty is described throughout the whole Bible. This is not just a new type of God or a new personality of God that shows up in the New Testament, but the entire Bible describes the one true God as a forgiving, pardoning, compassionate, Sin, vanquishing, purity, giving, iniquity, removing, faithfully loving God. In the Old Testament, the prophets speak about God like this. Micah 7, 18 through 19 says, Who is a God like you? Forgiving iniquity and passing over or, or pardoning rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. What great news, right? What great news for people like Barabbas. People like you and I. That is who our God is. And it's most, most fully shown and declared to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. The second thing that we pick up in our passage, Jesus is not just a substitute for the guilty here in the story, but we also see uh, the how behind victory is going to be won over the enemy. Barabbas, like many other first century Jews, hated the Romans, and, and, and rightly so, right? The Romans were a violent, oppressive, occupying government over Israel at this time. And Barabbas' solution 
to the enemy, to defeating the enemy, was through power and violence and war and strength and insurrection and theft and, and riot and murder. And, and we're pretty much like Barabbas as well. We too want to fight our enemies in this same way, through strength and through violence and through power. Whether it's the injustices that we see in our life, we want to fight them by gaining more power, gaining more influence, gaining more strength in order to snuff out the bad that we see in this world. Or, or maybe it's enemies that we see out there in the world, whether it's terrorists or, or countries that don't like us or people here in our city who wish us uh, harm or who want to take away our rights. Like Barabbas, our, our solution to defeating our enemies is often through power, through strength, through violence, through squishing those other people, the people that we dislike. But here we see in this story a stark contrast, black and white, complete opposites in the way that these two men work about defeating their enemy. Barabbas is the way of violence and power and riot and insurrection. Jesus is the way of sacrifice, of humility, of peace. In fact, earlier in, in, in Luke, in uh, Jesus' ministry, Jesus teaches his disciples this. He says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. This is true not just for Jesus' followers, not just for the church, but it's true for Jesus as well. It is through losing his life, it's through defeat, that Jesus will win victory over the enemy. And this is what separates Christianity from every other religion in this world, separates Christianity from every other way that we, uh, throughout this world, view ourselves and view our worth, our value, our life, and salvation. Elise Fitzpatrick writes about this. She says, True Christianity is not a program of self-improvement. It's an acknowledgement that something more than self-improvement is needed. What's needed is death and resurrection. Christians declare every time we gather together, every time we sing songs, every time we take the Lord's Supper, that in order for us to defeat our enemy, in order for us to have life, we must first lose it. That death to the old self, death to the, our, our former natures, death to our sin, and resurrection through faith in Christ is what we need, not simply self-improvement. Barabbas, in our story, in his efforts, failed. He got caught. Rome's still ruling. He's about to get executed. And it seems that Jesus has also been defeated as well, or that his efforts have failed. At the end of our story here, we see Jesus in chains. If we keep on reading, Jesus is executed. He does get hung on a Roman cross and, and does die at the hands of the Romans. Yet if we continue the story, if, if you come back Sunday morning, we see that Jesus' sacrifice, his innocence, his purity, his selflessness, and his humility is what actually defeats his enemy. On Sunday morning, on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus' enemy, our enemy, is 
defeated, but not through violence, not through trying to overthrow our own sin or overthrow a violent, evil-occupying government, but through his own death. Jesus wins freedom from the oppression of sin for his people. Jesus wins freedom of death for his people. Jesus is victorious through defeat. And Jesus is victorious over death by means of his own death. Jesus wins through defeat. And he gifts that victory to us. When Jesus speaks about his church, when he speaks about us, he says, not only does he defeat death, but he gifts that to his people. When Jesus describes his church, he's, uh, he's talking to Peter, one of his disciples, and Peter has just said, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And, and Jesus says to him, Peter, on that, on that declaration that I am the Messiah, that I am the Christ, that I am the coming, rescuing, and reigning righteous king, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail. And Hades, if you know the Bible, if you know Greek mythology, Hades is the, the place of the dead. And Jesus is saying that his church will, will storm the gates of the place of the dead. People who are imprisoned by death, who have no hope of ever defeating or escaping death. Jesus says, my victory through my death will be given to my people. And the gates, the shackles, the prisons of Hades will not be able to keep them there. Those people who trust in Christ. And the third thing we see tonight in our passage, Jesus as a sacrificial goat. The third thing we see in this passage is, is, is a reference to an ancient yet vital aspect of the history of God's people, the, the, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. A symbol and an event that was vitally important to them. The sacrificial goat on the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement was, was one day uh, every single year for the, uh, in the history of God's people. Two goats were brought to the high priest and they were examined and, and looked at to make sure that they were spotless, that they were innocent, that they were pure, that they were perfect. And one of those goats was sacrificed for the sin of the entire nation. Not just one person coming to the temple or to the, to the tent with a particular animal for their sacrifices. But on the Day of Atonement, a single goat was sacrificed and, and all the sins of the entire nation for that entire year were atoned for. We read about this in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. So once a sacrifice was made, a goat was killed, a perfect innocent goat was slaughtered so that the sins of all of God's people would be forgiven. And here in Luke 23, we have this happening again. Back in verse 14, we read that Jesus was inspected. And when, ins and when inspected and looked over, Pilate says he's innocent. There is no guilt in him. He is spotless. He is perfect. 
Just like the high priest would examine the sacrificial goat to make sure it was spotless and clean and faultless, Jesus, too, would do that. And he would also take on the punishment that all of his people deserved, just like the sacrificial goat. He would be slain, and his people's sins would be atoned for. And the rest of the Bible helps us understand what's going on in Jesus' death and resurrection uh, using this type of of language as well. The rest of the Bible helps us see that through Jesus' sacrifice, through his atoning uh, being slaughtered, that atonement happened not just for the Jews, not just for God's covenant people, but for anyone who would trust in this atoning sacrifice. And the rest of the New Testament doesn't just tell us, help us understand this about what's, what's, what's happening on the cross, but also helps us understand the why behind it. What, why are things changing and, and why is God doing this? Why does, why does God take on human flesh and die in our place? Why doesn't the sacrificial goat just keep continuing? Why does God himself become the goat that will be mocked and tortured and abused and executed? Romans 5 in the New Testament, after Jesus' death and resurrection, looking back at that, helps us understand what's going on. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just, uh, for, for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his love. If you're wondering about God's love for you, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were Barabbas, Christ died for us. Before we were good, faithful servants of the Most High God, before that, apart from that, Christ died for us. John Piper writing about this says, we are unworthy of Christ. We are unworthy of him as Messiah, unworthy of him as our sacrifice, unworthy of him being in relationship with him. We are unworthy of Christ, and we have great worth because of Christ. Christ died for us, not because we are worthy, but because we are unworthy, and there was no other way for us to be made worthy. It wasn't a fair trade. The Son of God died. Rebels lived. That's not fair. And that's grace. And that is why we call this Good Friday. That is why Christians for thousands of years across the globe celebrate the death of our God, the death of our Savior, the humiliation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's why we celebrate our King's defeat and our King's sacrifice. Some of you might be thinking, but can this really be true? Can't all this maybe just be, uh, what's the word? Um, Should have wrote this down. Uh, Coincidence? Can't this all just be kind of coincidence that it kind of lines up with the the, the sacrifice and him defeating uh, our enemies through death? I mean, can't this just be a coincidence? Or maybe you're just thinking, yeah, but this is just, this is just too good to be true. And we might all feel that at least to some extent, but listen to Jesus. This is after his death. 
after his resurrection, he comes back, he, he speaks to his disciples, and he tells them this. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and Jesus said to them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sin will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. See, Jesus knew his mission. He, he knew you, he knew me, he knew humanity and, and what our state was and what we needed. And he knew what his mission was when he came into this world. He knew that he needed to die and suffer. He knew that he would rise from the grave and that through that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would now be proclaimed throughout the entire world, not just with God's people Israel, but now to the entire world. Now Jesus, think about, let's go back to his trial just for a second. Jesus could have defended himself. And we, did, we, we just read a few verses from his trial. But Jesus kept his mouth shut. He did not defend himself. He did not say, I know my rights here. Pilate, Herod, let me go. I'm innocent. What are you doing? My trial is a sham. You're breaking the laws. Jesus could have defended himself. Jesus could have shown who he really was, right? He could have floated in the air and started glowing and flexed his divine muscles and said, creation, what are you thinking? I am who I said I am. He could have done that. He could have snapped his finger and stopped the trial or reversed time or God could have opened up the clouds, God the Father, and spoke to everyone in this trial and say, stop, he is innocent, you are wrong. But he didn't because Jesus knew his mission. He knew he had to go through this trial. He knew he came into this world to save sinners. And the way he was going to save sinners was through a bloody cross. Jesus knew his mission. He knew you. He knew I. He knew we needed a substitute. Jesus knew that our violence-absorbing peacemaker, or Jesus became our violence-absorbing peacemaker between us and God. He knew the only way to defeat our enemies of Satan and sin and death that we could never defeat. And he knew that we needed a sacrifice, a sacrifice that would bring atonement once and for all, for all who believe. Brothers and sisters, people who aren't Christians here today that are listening and interested for the first time, th this is why this story is so powerful. And it's especially powerful if we are Barabbas. If we are Barabbas, if, if, if we know that we have rebelled against our Creator, if we know that in our hearts we're imperfect, if we know and remember our, our motives, our pasts, our desires, our inability to be perfect, for those of us that, even though we hate to say it, but in our hearts we're saying, yeah, I'm kind of like Barabbas. If we're like Barabbas, this is the most beautiful, glorious story ever. But if we don't think we're like Barabbas, then what a horrible story, right? A story about injustice, and then more injustice, and then more injustice, and more injustice, right? Because the innocent, perfect creator of the universe gets crucified, and the scumbag, murdering uh, insurrectionist 
gets to go free. But if this story is about us being Barabbas, then it is powerful and beautiful. Mike McKinley writes about this passage. Listen, listen to what he says. From, from the viewpoint of Barabbas, and put yourself in Barabbas's shoes. He says, here's a dramatic picture of what Jesus was about to do for his people at the cross. Imagine what it would be like to be Barabbas on that day, sitting in a Roman jail cell, awaiting the most gruesome death imaginable. On this fateful day, you hear a mob outside. Clearly, something is going on. Has word gotten out that today is your day, the, the day of your death? Sounds like it. You can hear the crowds yelling, crucify him, crucify him. But when the guard comes to get you, instead of placing the cross on your back, he unlocks your shackles and sets you free. As you stand there, you watch another man stumble off under the weight of the cross. The very cross you had imagined was going to be yours. And when you ask someone in the crowd what this man has done to deserve this fate, the answers are surprisingly vague. All you know is that you have been chosen for life and he has been chosen for death. That is the gospel. That is what our spiritual story is. We are rebels against our creator king on death row. And someone steps in and takes our penalty, dies as our substitute, defeats our enemies by, by, by dying himself, and does what no, no other sacrifice could ever do, atone our sins, our past sins, our current sins, our future sins, and makes us righteous, makes us innocent, makes us pure. My favorite song over the past year has been one by uh, Keith and Kristen Getty called My Worth is Not in What I Own. And some of the lyrics in this, this song hit on this, so I'm going to read a few lines. My, my, my worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. Two wonders here I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. My value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. So I will rejoice in my Redeemer, my greatest treasure, the wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. As Christians, both of these things are our reality, are our identity right now. We confess these two wonders that we just cannot believe. That we have worth. That our value is fixed. That cannot be changed. And at the same time, we are also unworthy. But because our value is fixed, because our ransom is paid at the cross, it now leads to this bottom. Our response to the gospel, our response to this passage in Luke is that we rejoice in our Redeemer, the one who bought us back, the one who pardoned us, the one who died in our place, the one who gives us 
life and hope and identity and worth and salvation and and life throughout eternity. So as we leave here today, let us remember that. Let us see ourselves in Barabbas. Let us rejoice in our Redeemer and our Savior, the one who was our uh, atoning sacrifice, the one who defeated our enemies that we were helpless to defeat. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this strange yet true and, and beautiful and powerful passage that reminds us of our reality, our story. God, we were Barabbas. We were without hope. We needed an atoning sacrifice. We needed our insurrection and and, and traitorous deeds to be forgiven, but we had no hope of doing that. We're We're about to be executed. We're on death row. We're an enemy of the state. We're traitors against our king, and yet you stepped in and put that cross on your back and we get to walk away free. Pray that we would believe that, we would celebrate that. Today would be good Friday. And for those in this room and and listening online that haven't believed that yet and think this just is too crazy or, or just cannot be true, too good to be true, help them to believe. Open up their eyes to see and their hearts to receive. We pray this in your wonderful and saving name, Jesus.